I want to start by uh, giving a plug for a book that is actually at the back information counter or something that you could purchase online if you'd want. I ordered a few copies that you can buy from the church. They're $15. Or if you want to purchase it digitally, I know a lot of you now read on digital devices um, or on Amazon, you're welcome to do that. But this book is called A Week in the Life of Corinth. It's completely fictional, but it is historical fiction in that it tries to give you some idea of what it would have been like in the city of Corinth. It follows the life of a recently freed man, somebody who used to be a slave, as he encounters this new group of individuals that follow this short man named Paulos and get together on a regular basis and eat the body and drink the blood of the person that they worship. So it's a good book. It's actually really cool. It gives you a good perspective on what it would have been like in the city of Corinth. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians here in two weeks, but even now, I want to tell you that Paul probably wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. And so this gives us some interesting historical context. Um, the library is going to be done soon. We're going to put a copy in the library, but I encourage you, uh, we'll read it together for those of you who are interested and sort of go through it, and it'll give you a, a cool perspective. Again, there's a few copies back on the information counter. We can order more if we need to, or you can order them, but I think it will be fun to do together. I personally really enjoy movies that have a plot of deception. So the one that comes to mind um, for me is just Mission Impossible. I, I really enjoy that, and I enjoy the sort of twist of the masks coming off and seeing, oh, I didn't see that coming, or that was, that was a cool deception, or oh, that worked out really cool. But in real life, deception is a problem. Deception is a real problem in our society. Actually, the Federal Trade Commission in 2021 estimated that there were something like 1.6 million cases of identity fraud involving banks. If you want to talk about deception, go talk to a banker. They can tell you about the sorts of deception that occurs on a regular basis. Deception is a problem. People in our society are susceptible to being deceived. We're going to see in 2 Thessalonians the dangers of deception. And we'll also see, though, the solution. Yes, deception is dangerous, but the solution is Scripture. The Bible provides us the solution to deception. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, and as you do so, I want to sort of set the stage for you before we start reading this passage to set the stage, what I want to tell you is that Christians are in constant danger of growing cold, losing our faith, being deceived. We live in a fallen world, a world that will stop at nothing less than pulling us away from the truth of the Bible. The Christian must remember to remain firm. You see, in 2 Thessalonians uh, especially in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is bridging. He's bridging between chapter 1, which talks about our sanctification, our progressive being made more and more like Christ. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about what I'm going to call personal discipline, being disciplined as Christians. And the gap between those, he bridges with a message on the danger of deception. As we grow more like Christ, we must always be on guard against false teaching because it's out there. It exists. We have to guard ourselves. 
we can't grow complacent. The biggest threat to being growing complacent is actually deceptive teaching. Teaching that tells us anything other than the gospel, that pulls us away from Christ. The deceptive teaching that comes up in 2 Thessalonians actually stems from Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians. Remember in 1 Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul had taught that the day of the Lord was coming, a day when God would judge sin, a day when God would redeem the righteous to heaven. The day of the Lord was coming, Paul had taught them. Look out for it. It's on its way. There is coming a time when God will send Jesus to take his own to heaven and proceed to judge the world for its sin. That's coming. Deceptive teachers in 2 Thessalonians, what we learn, has had taken Paul's message of the day of the Lord, and as all good deception does, twisted it just slightly. They had told the Thessalonians, you missed it. The day of the Lord already came and you missed it. You have no hope. It's over. Just give up now because it's already happened. To that, Paul responds, absolutely not. You still have hope. So let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in light of that context. Starting in verse 1 says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed in the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's actually 
one of, I think, the harder chapters in the New Testament to interpret. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot that is often debated and talked about. But we can glean some important truths out of here. The first truth that the Apostle Paul really brings out, really highlights, is that deceptive teaching is dangerous to Christians. Deceptive teaching is dangerous to Christians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.2, the Apostle Paul had taught that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. False teachers had used this to rob the Christians of their hope. You see, deceptive teaching can rob a Christian of the hope that they have. Paul had taught the believers that the day of the Lord was coming. He had taught them to hope, to expect, earnestly expect that Christ is coming again, to redeem and to judge. And some false teachers had twisted Paul's words slightly and said, give up. He's already come. You missed it. Tough luck. Paul directly addresses this and says, no, the proper response to deceptive teaching is don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Remember that. No matter what somebody says to you, our hope, our expectation, in fact, what we know is that Christ is coming again to redeem, to judge sin, and to fix all that is wrong. Don't lose hope. You know this. False teachers had come in. They had twisted the truth. But Paul said, no, don't lose hope. Paul's response is very simple. It's a cliche, but it's a true cliche. God's got this. We serve the sovereign God of the universe. He's got this. He's in control. Don't lose hope. God's got this. Paul also goes on, and he emphasizes in verses 1 and 2 that accurate teaching must be tested to be consistent with the message of Scripture. Now, Paul doesn't exactly say those words. Instead, in verse 2, he says, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching that is allegedly from us. Don't be easily unsettled. You know what we told you when we came. That's what the Apostle Paul is essentially saying. You know the teaching that we gave you earlier. We, as Christians say, we have the whole Bible. We have the complete word of God. We know what's in here. We shouldn't allow people to come in and easily unsettle us. No. We know the message of Scripture. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he is redeeming and will one day come again to take us to heaven. Don't be easily unsettled. In verses 3 and 5, Paul is, begins to expound. He, he has told them the basic principle. How do you deal with deceptive teaching? You don't lose hope. Then Paul, in verses 3 through 5, actually tackles the exact problem, the exact deceptive teaching that's going on. And Paul says, in the case of the day of the Lord, there are some certain prerequisites that need to be met. Paul is basically saying, I guarantee you the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because the prerequisites haven't been taken care of. There are some things that have to happen for the day of the Lord to come. And this is where it gets complicated because we are third parties 
to a conversation now. The conversation happened between Paul and the Thessalonians, and now we're reading a letter about the conversation. So we're third parties to it. So interpreting this is a challenge. But look at some of the facts that happen before the day of the Lord. The first thing that happens before the day of the Lord is a rebellion or apostasy. Now, let me argue for just a second. Ever since the founding of the church, there has been rebellion and false teaching. That it happened right away. We see that in the book of Acts. I think what Paul is talking about is something exceptionally different. There appears to be coming a time when the church will depart so far from false doctrine that it can be called nothing short of the apostasy. The church will have departed so far into false doctrine that it will be called the apostasy. How could this happen? How could the church get so far from the true doctrine? Let me give you a proposal. It's actually really easy to do. You remove everybody from the church who's actually saved. Okay? So I spoke two months ago about an event called the rapture where everybody who is saved is taken to heaven to be with Christ. And guess what is going to happen to those who are left? They will go into complete false doctrine, the apostasy. There is coming a time when there will be complete rebellion and apostasy. Um, I think it's something like this. If you're asking the question, has the apostasy occurred? It hasn't because you're asking the question. Okay? Everybody who is capable of asking that question is going to be gone when it occurs, and no one's even going to realize how far things have gone. You, you probably have seen this in in people's lives when they sort of go completely off the wagon, they don't even realize it, right? That's what this is talking about. There is coming a time when I believe the true Christians will be gone in heaven and those who remain will go off the deep end. And then there will be revealed a man of lawlessness. Now, again, there have been lots of men of lawlessness, lots of people, but this one will trump them all. Uh, actually, I don't want to go too grammatical here into the Greek grammar, but I'll venture in just a little bit. It's in what's called an aorist subjunctive, whatever that means, right? What it means is this is a one-point-in-time event, something that will happen that is definitive there will be the revelation of somebody who is so bad he trumps them all, okay? When this happens, it will be so obvious that people aren't going to debate who it is because it's clear. This guy is the epitome of lawlessness. But then remember, we'll all be gone, so nobody's going to care, okay? These are the prerequisites that the Apostle Paul is describing, He's telling the Thessalonians, don't give up hope. First of all, because God's got this. You know that. Second of all, because the prerequisites haven't been met. There is somebody coming who is going to oppose everything associated with God. He's going to exalt himself and basically call himself God. He'll set himself up in God's temple. What is the point of all of this for us today? 
we could go into a deep discussion about exactly who is the man of lawlessness. Uh, in the book of First John, he's called Antichrist. We could get into all sorts of discussion about who is this, where does he come from? But that's not the point of the passage for us, I don't believe. I believe the point of the passage is don't lose hope. Don't lose your hope. God is in charge. He has this all laid out. He knows all the details. We can place our hope in Christ knowing that all of this is coming, but he's got this. Let me give it uh, in a, another example. I know people who spend a lot of time trying to guess who the man of lawlessness is going to be. And I know people that maybe don't exactly do this, but get close. They read all of the newspapers to see all the world events and who all the terrible people in the world are. And once they've read one newspaper, they get another newspaper out and read that one to see who all the terrible people in the world are. And they get consumed with trying to uncover how bad the world is. Okay, I'm going to spoil it for you. The world is bad. Okay? Don't be consumed with the badness of the world. Instead, put your hope in Christ. Let's give an action step here. The action that I have for you to take is determine to study Scripture so that you're not easily deceived. My mom gave me a challenge. It wasn't actually a challenge that she was giving me. She was just talking at one point, but I took it as a challenge. She said, what if people spent more time reading their Bibles than reading all of these random books and newspapers and news articles? And that got me thinking. How much time do I spend reading things written by mere men? And how much time do I spend reading things written by the God of the universe? What's got more truth in it? I guarantee you the Bible is the place where we're going to find truth. Determine to study scripture so that you're not easily deceived. I don't care what newspaper, what news source you're reading, it can deceive you. If you study the Bible, you will not be easily deceived. I'm going to make another plug. On Monday... I noticed a lot of people had started the Bible reading challenge that I issued last Sunday. I'm really excited by that. I'm going to make another plug. If you haven't started the Bible reading challenge, start it. We've got it for you. But let's move on to verses 6 through 12. Because the Apostle Paul goes a little bit deeper in verses 6 through 12. And the point that he makes here in verses 6 through 12 is that deceptive teaching is present and it will get worse. But still, don't lose hope. Deceptive teaching is present. It's a reality. And in fact, it's going to get worse. But we should not lose hope. Even though there is much evil in the world, God is actually holding back the worst of it. Here's an interesting principle that comes out of verses 6 through 12. There is evil in the world. There's much evil in the world. But what we learn is that God's actually holding back the worst of it. 
In verses 6 through 7, we are told that some force, the Apostle Paul is vague here. I suspect it's because he had already told them the details in person. Some force, I think it's the Holy Spirit, is holding back the evil that our world so desperately wants to fall into. It says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. You know what's holding him back, and I suspect pretty strongly the answer is the Holy Spirit. Yes, there are times when the world seems unbearable, where it seems like God is nowhere to be found. But that's not the case. In fact, God is at work right now restraining evil. The Holy Spirit is working. Now, here's an interesting thought to think about. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? The answer is within you. So where is the Holy Spirit working the most? Again, the answer is within you. The role that you are playing today in God's plan is significant. God's people, his church, plays a role in holding back evil from our world. We are representing God to the world. The Holy Spirit works through us. So it's interesting as we continue on. Um, Verse 7, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Okay, the secret power of lawlessness. Satan's work is already being done. Evil is already present. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so. The Holy Spirit will continue to hold back evil. I believe working through us until he is taken out of the way. And hopefully you're saying, what? He's taken out of the way? What's going on there? Let me give you a proposal. I've told you there's coming a time when Jesus is coming and he's going to take us to heaven. I argued that the Holy Spirit is working through you to hold back evil. And when you're taken to heaven, guess who won't be here the Holy Spirit working through us to restrain evil. I think this is the moment that's being talked about here. There is coming a time when God's church is raptured to heaven. And when that happens, chaos will ensue. But we won't be here. So yes, the world is an evil place. Yes, it seems like deceptive teaching, like evil is present And it seems like it gets worse and worse, but recognize that God is holding back the worst of it. And when he stops holding back the worst of it, you won't be here, so it won't matter to you. The NIV translates in verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness. I want to just give you a heads up. Whenever you're reading in your Bible and it talks in the New Testament about the secret something or the mystery of something, it's a Greek word, mysterion, And it refers to something that was previously unknown until it was written about there. So it refers to something that the world did not know about until that moment. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is up until this point, things are getting worse, but you didn't know that really what's going on underneath 
is that Satan is trying to drive the world into evil and the Holy Spirit is holding him back through the work of his indwelling work within the church. That's previously unknown, now you know. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It was a mystery before, it is no longer. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know, don't lose hope. The Holy Spirit is at work. Yes, the world is evil, but don't lose hope. In fact, he, in verse 8, says, don't forget, the end is already written and God wins. Okay? Have you ever done that? I used to like to do that when I was reading a book. I would go and read the last couple sentences in the book before I started the book, just so I'd know sort of how it's going to wrap up. I like to know things. Okay? I'm going to spoil it for you. I have read the end... And God wins. Okay? That's what the Apostle Paul is really saying in verse 8. The Lord Jesus will overthrow lawlessness. Actually, look at how he overthrows lawlessness in verse 8 there. He overthrows lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. Now, I think the reference here is that breath represents life. And Jesus is alive. He rose again from the dead, defeating death and guaranteeing his defeat of evil. Never forget, the end is already written and God wins. Jesus is going to overthrow lawlessness. It is guaranteed. We do need to recognize the basic traits, though, of Satan's attacks. So Paul continues on, in verses 9 through 12, and he actually outlines the way Satan works. He gives us a heads up as to how Satan deceives. So what do we learn about Satan's methodology? Satan is a counterfeit. Satan displays power through counterfeit signs and wonders. Satan's methodology reinforces his lies. And in verse 10, we see that his wickedness deceives those who don't know Christ. Satan is a counterfeit, and counterfeits can be hard to spot. In fact, if you look up counterfeit money and different things with that, there are people who are trained to spot counterfeits. Most of us couldn't spot a counterfeit unless it was a really obvious counterfeit. When we accept Christ as our Savior and the Holy Spirit indwells us, we gain the ability to spot counterfeits. And we can spot the wickedness that the rest of the world seems to be fooled by. Paul tells us Satan is a counterfeit. The Christian, though, can spot the counterfeit. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed in truth but have delighted in wickedness. God allows those who reject Christ to be deceived. So when you're looking at your newspaper and hopefully less than your time you're spending in the Bible, but when you're looking at your newspaper and you're thinking to yourself, how do they not see this is terrible? How do they not see the wickedness of this? 
understand they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit who identifies the counterfeit. When someone rejects God, God allows them to be fooled. That's God's will. That's his prerogative. So let me sort of wrap all of this together into some sort of an action step. We've been all over the place. So let me try to bring this together. Why don't we perform a humility check? Ask yourself the question, am I content waiting for Jesus to act to destroy evil? Are you content waiting for Jesus' timing on the destruction of evil? All the while taking your responsibility to defend righteousness seriously. So this is, this is a balance action step. Remember what I told you. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and I believe through the church, through us, is restraining evil. We have a responsibility in the restraint of evil. When we vote, we should vote to restrain evil. When we talk to people, we should point out evil. We should point out things that are biblically wrong. But we do not have a responsibility to eliminate evil. That's Christ. Perform a humility check. Are you content waiting for Jesus to destroy evil while taking your responsibility to defend righteousness seriously? It's a knife edge. We go too far, and we're taking Christ's responsibility. We don't go far enough, and we're abdicating our responsibility. Let me move on. That's kind of a hard section of scripture. Let me move on to what I think is the not surprising result, but um, maybe joyful result. And that is verses 13 through 17. We can take joy, we can take hope, we can take great pleasure that deceptive teaching cannot prevail against the truth of the gospel. Yes, there is deceptive teaching out there, but it will not prevail against the truth of the gospel. Paul says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. We can give great gratitude because of the truth of the gospel. You see, the truth of the gospel is the solution to deceptive teaching. The truth of the gospel is the, is the solution. Deception is real. But God has chosen us to respond to the gospel, to see, to accept, to believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again three days later. That's the truth of the gospel. And if we put our complete trust in Christ's payment, we move from deception into the light. The means of salvation is trusting in Jesus' payment. In verse 15, we're reminded the truth of the gospel can be found in Scripture. In verse 15, Paul says, So brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. We no longer have 
the Apostle Paul to share with us his word of mouth, or any of the apostles for that matter. But we do have their letters here recorded in Scripture. Paul says, stand firm in light of everything he's just said. What is his major concern? What is his primary focus? What is it that he wants people to focus on the most? Standing firm and holding fast to the teachings. The solution to deceptive teaching is Scripture. Why? Because ultimately, hope and encouragement come from God. Paul says, stand firm in the encouragement that comes from God. Stand firm in the strength that comes from every good deed and word. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We have the words of God. This is our hope. This is our trust. So let me give you an action step. Some of you have already done this for a week. I challenge you to continue. Maybe you haven't done this yet. Will you commit to purposeful, meaningful engagement with the truth found in Scripture? This is where our hope comes from. This is our solution. The Bible stands This is where we're going to find our true hope and encouragement. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for scripture. I thank you that we can place our hope, our trust in you because of what you have written for us, your message to us. I pray that we would engage deeply with your word. Father, we live in a day and age where we could spend the entire day reading and have not even covered a fraction of what is available to us out there. We could spend an entire day watching the news and have not spent any time with you. Father, there are distractions out there, and those distractions bring with them deception. I pray that this year you would drive us to your word, to the truth of scripture. Father, your word is the solution. It is our hope. It is our encouragement. I pray that we would learn to study your word, learn to place it as a priority in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.